Yeah, so as we, uh, as we start the number, the part five of our series, we've talked about several different things. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the blueprint uh, versus the game plan that God has in store. And so tonight really is kind of a part two to that study, uh, and that will, uh, some of it is really a continuation of that belief system. And so as we, as we get started here tonight, you know, the, the number one thing as humans that we would say that we want to pursue is meaning. We want things to count, right? We want things to matter. And so, you know, as, as humanity, the things that we do is we keep records, right? Things that matter. And so we say, oh, well, you know, this person's scored the most touchdowns or this person, you know, has been president, you know, this many times or this person got this many votes or, you know, on and on and on. Everything's recorded. Everybody keeps a record. And, and it's all in an attempt to have meaning. We all want to have meaning in everything that we do. And we don't want to do anything that doesn't have meaning. We've been in the pursuit of this meaning from the very beginning. Remember Adam and Eve, right? And the whole thing was, well, it supposedly if we eat this fruit, we're going to be smarter. And so that would increase our value, at least self, self-perceived value. And so it was all a pursuit of meaning. It's the same thing for you and for me, that we all want to do things that count. We want to be a part of things that count. We want to be a part of something that has meaning. And so when we do things, uh, you know, we talk about memories, right? Those are things that have meaning and things that we're involved in. And so humans have been in this pursuit to try to make sure that we make our life count. You and I have been to funerals before, and, uh, you know, we, we've listened to eulogies and the things that people say about those that have passed on, and, and we think to ourselves, and, and normally it's right after those moments to where we recommit, right, that I'm going to do more, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be more committed to what God has called me to do, or I'm going to be more focused on, you know, X, Y, Z. It's normally in those moments where we're reminded not only of the brevity of life, but the importance of life. You see, everybody wants to feel like they're living for something. It's built into our DNA to have the desire to have purpose. You see, we even talk about this thing we, we refer to as a calling, right? That I have this call on my life to do something. And it could be whatever, you know, God called me to missions, or God called me to reach my neighbor, or God called me to, to this position, or God called me to marry this person, or, or whatever it may be. And we, we reference that event in our life by a calling, and it's because we desire for that to be true. All throughout Scripture is littered where God has called someone to do something, right, to have purpose, to have meaning. God fashioned the nation of Israel uh, through Abraham, and He called them to be His own people. And we see in the New Testament where God used people, He used the disciples, and He used Paul to, to go out and share the gospel. And what? In calling people unto Jesus. And the call for us as modern-day believers today is the Great Commission, right? That we would be on mission with Jesus in calling other people into the kingdom. Amen? And so we want to be a part of that. We desire to have purpose, to be a part of something that has meaning. This is why, if you have kids, you have certainly experienced the fact that God has made your child an expert at asking the question, why? Right? Well, why are we doing that? 
well, why, why did you say that? Or why can't I do that? Or why are we eating that for supper, right? All of the why, they want to know why on everything. They're very inquisitive. That's what, that's what people say. But the truth is, built into their DNA, even at a young age, is the reality that their life has to have meaning. That they don't want to do something that's meaningless. And you would agree, deep within yourself, you don't want to be a part of something that doesn't count, something that doesn't have meaning. You see, for us, when we know what our why is, we can almost handle any how. If we know why we're doing what we're doing, if we know why we're involved in whatever it is that we're involved in, the how is not important, and it's certainly not as difficult as it could be, right? If you say, well, you know, God called me to be a mom. And, and so you say, well, you know, in order to be a mom, you kind of have to have a baby, right? Well, how do you do that? Well, I've never experienced that personally, uh, but we do have two kids, and they say the pain level is incredibly high. Let's just put it that way. So if you're in here tonight and you can attest to that, then my point is this, is that if you say, I'll endure that, the how is not important. I'll endure the how because of the why. And it may be, there's so many other things that, you know, we could say as, as uh, family members, maybe things that you've done for people, maybe things that you've done for the kingdom, hopefully, that you would say, it was difficult, but the why outweighed the what or the how. And when we know what our why is, when we live with meaning, when we live with purpose, God does things in our life that we otherwise would never be involved in. You see, when we define what our why is, or more importantly, when God defines our why, then nothing can prevent us from moving forward. You know, there's been times in my life where I've been involved in things, and I really had to cling to the verse that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. You see, when God, when you're involved in things of God, you're involved in difficult things. I mean, let's just be honest. And when God calls you to do something, when you're involved in the meaning and the mission of Jesus, there are times in your life where you have to remind yourself that there is no weapon that is formed against me that will prosper. Now, granted, this is not your choices. This is God's choices. If you go off on some trail and you create all these situations for yourself and then declare no weapon formed against me shall prosper, well, it might, okay, because you created the situation. But if God creates the situation, it is absolutely true. And that's where we're leading to tonight is there is a differentiator between me pursuing the things that I want and me pursuing the things that God wants. You see, the reality is a wasted life is a life that's lived with no connection to the purposes of God. Now, I didn't say a wasted life. I want to be very clear. A wasted life is one that is lived on an agenda that has no connection to God's purposes. You can still be religious and not be connected to God's purposes. I want to be very clear because I think the distinction is important tonight. That you can, you can go off and, and, and be religious, if you will. You can go through the motions. But if there's no connection to God's purposes, what did God called you to do, what is God involved in, well, then you've wasted your life. You see, no one starts out this way, though. 
No one says, you know, I just want to lead a mediocre life. I just want to be middle of the road. I don't really want to accomplish much. I want to be, you know, if, if a 32 on the ACT is good, I'm good with a 10, you know, right? If an IQ of 180 is smart, and I don't really know what the number is that's good, um, I'm, I'll take a 90, right? No one does that. You know, if, if X dollars in a salary is good, give me half. I'm content with living below the poverty line. I, I'll do that, right? None of us start out that way. We have ambition. We, we have goals. We have things that we want to be a part of. Everyone has aspirations, especially as a child, of doing great things. Have you ever met an astronaut? Raise your hand in the room if you've ever met a legit astronaut. All right, so like three or four people. But yet, half the room as a child wanted to be an astronaut when they grew up, right? That was the goal. I want to be an astronaut. And yet, only three or four people out of 100 have ever met one, much less been one. You see what I'm saying? We start with these aspirations of things that we want to be. You know, we say, oh, you know, athletic. I want to be a professional athlete. And the statistics for that is off the chart. But we think in our minds, I can do that. I can be an astronaut. I can be in no gravity, or I can spend months away, or I can go, you know, light years away from earth. Because why? Because in our minds, God has put in our DNA to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to be a part of something that He has created. But what's happened in our life is meaning and purpose begins to fade when we experience unfilled expectations in our lives. That we've got all these aspirations that built into our DNA is the reality that God has called us to something that is greater than ourselves, something in and of ourselves we could never accomplish on our own, but yet we, have the, we begin to create these expectations in our mind. And, and this is how this will work, and, and this is how this will work, and this is how this will work. And then all of a sudden what happens? Life happens, Right? The older you get, the more you realize that that is really true. That you know, what happened to me? Life happened to you. And your unmet and unfilled expectations began to filter in your belief system of not only who God is, but what you believe that God can do. And so you began to define God based on your unmet expectations of who God is. And you created a version of God in your mind that is the farthest thing from who God is. God still wants you to do things that you can't do. God's still calling you to be a part of things that you can never imagine. And so tonight as we talk about this, these unmet, these unfilled expectations, I want to remind you of something. God created you intentionally, and this is for each one of you, as though we're sitting face to face, I want you to hear this as though it's just me and you. God created you intentionally and specifically to be a part of His plan. You are not a mistake. You have not failed to the point that you cannot be used. Again, imagine it's me and you. I want to encourage you. The Bible says that you were intricately, intricately made in your mother's womb. God made you on purpose. He created you for a plan. And he desires for you to be a part of that plan. And you cannot outfail God. 
You are a part of his creation. You are breathing his oxygen because he desires for you to be a part of his purposes. And see, oftentimes in our life, when we have these unmet and unfilled expectations, we forget that. We forget, whether through circumstances or people or the enemy, that we forget that we are uniquely made, that God, you, that God made me intentionally, that God is calling me to a greater purpose beyond myself. And we expect, we begin to expect things from God and these unmet expectations. And we expect God to give us more than we think we're getting. And when we don't get what we think God should give us, it leads us to question our purpose. Well, this situation didn't work out. Or this plan didn't work out. Or this blueprint, if you will, didn't work out. This relationship didn't work out. And we began to impose those unmet expectations on God because he is not holding up his end of the bargain, so people would say. And so tonight, the next spiritual urban legend that we'll explore is the one that says everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And so as we look at this, I want you to think. You see, many people believe, many people believe, maybe this is you tonight. Many people believe that no matter what they do and no matter what happens to them, God is going to right all of the wrongs and everything will come out in the wash. Some people believe that. Maybe you. And so what happens is, they really don't have any reason to fear the consequences of sin if everything works out anyway, right? I mean, isn't that the logical conclusion? That if God works everything out at the end, and, I, well, I can just do whatever I want. There's no consequences to sin or not sinning because God's going to fix it all anyway, right? It's like driving a rental car with insurance. You can do whatever you want, right? Right? And so you, you think about this and you say, hey, I can go out and I can sin and I can do anything because God's just going to correct all of my wrongs. He's going to fix everything that takes place. That's what this thought process shows. You see, it doesn't take long to look around and see all of the terrible things that are taking place around us. I don't watch television very often at all on purpose. I definitely do not watch live television, especially the news. I do not watch that. We do not turn that station on in my house. I do not listen to it. But it doesn't take long to, I read the news, so I can, I can control what comes into my mind. And so it doesn't take long for us to read or to hear all the things that, that are taking place. I mean, here's just a few. War, murder. How about personal issues that people deal with today? Um, health problems, relational conflict. All of these things that are taking place around us. And what do we want to do? In pursuit of our meaning, of the, the pursuit of meaning, we want to make sense of all of it, right? We want to say, well, well, this is happening because this is happening, or if this takes place, then this will take place. And so we want to make sense of everything that's happening. Remember, the legend says everything happens for a reason. And so the only way that our finite minds can cope with this is to grasp to the hope that everything that happens has some redemptive purpose. That's what we want to believe. I want to believe that. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. 
Uh, we want to believe that absolutely everything that happens is on purpose, right? That everything happens on purpose. That somehow, some way, all of this will make sense at some point. And so when things happen that we can't explain, when things happen that cause pain, in an effort to make sense of these things, here's what people say. I gave you a list in case this was you or in case you've heard some of these things before. So the first thing people say, oh, well, God must be up to something. You heard that before? Something bad happens. You didn't get the job that you wanted. Um, you know, somebody does something to you. I mean, there's lots of situations. And, and, and people say, oh, well, God must be up to something. Well, if that, when one door closes, another door opens, right? And that you heard people say that before? God must be up to something. Well, is that? Anyway, I'll, let's keep going. Hang on. I got to keep going. I got to stay on course. Number two, God doesn't make mistakes. I've heard that before. You may have said that before. These are the things that people say to justify the fact that everything happens for a reason. God must be up to something, which, you know, he is up to something. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. But in the confines of the conversation, this is not what people mean. How about this? Won't it be great to see how God uses this? You know, you get a diagnosis that is unfavorable. Well, I just can't wait to see how God uses this. Really? Well, then why don't you take it, right? I mean, let's be honest. We, none of us are pursuing pain. None of us are pursuing bad things. Or, or how about this? Isn't it good to know that everything happens for a reason? I mean... I can tell, I know uh, Tony talks about this sometimes. Things have personally, personally happened to me at a funeral. People have said insensitive things like that to me, at a family member's funeral, to me. So these things have been said maybe to you or by you. These are some common things that, that people say. And, and the reality is that none of, these, none of these comments, you know, hey, well, you know, God must be up to something, or isn't it good to know that everything happens for a reason? Well, none of the people who are quick to proclaim that difficulties are a blessing seem very eager to be blessed in the same way, right? You know, if, if something bad is happening, you lose your job or something happens or whatever it may be, and, and someone's trying to console you, is anybody volunteering to swap places with you? All right, that's what I'm talking about here, is we rehearse these things, that, but do we really believe them? You see, the verse that is often used to declare this Reality is Romans 8, 28 should be on your handout. It says, we know that it's very popular. You've heard it before. Uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here's what we've done. There's a lot of verses that are like this, but here's what we've done. I thought about putting this on the handout, and I didn't. Um, but here's what we've done. We've taken verses that we want to say certain things, and we've made them say what we want them to say. A good example is in Philippians chapter 4. It says, my God shall supply all of blank needs according to his riches and glory. And we say, my needs. My God shall supply all of my needs. According That's not what that verse says. It says, my God shall supply all of your needs. According to Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, right? But we've turned it into me. We made it about me. Here's another one. Uh, uh, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. 
Right? Isn't that a song we sing at Christmas? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's not what that verse says. Read it. It says, it's in Luke chapter 2, I believe. Peace on earth, or chapter 1. Goodwill towards men and whom God is pleased. That's what it says. And so when we read this verse and we say, well, everything works out. Well, there are some qualifiers in here. It says, we know that those who love God, uh, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a trick question. What does this verse say? I'll tell you what it says. I would suggest to you tonight that it says exactly what you think it says. Read it. That's what it says. It's not mumbo-jumbo, you can't understand it. There's a qualifier. What's the first thing? It says, well, number one, you must love God. Now, this is not 21st century, I go to church to love God. Okay, let's be clear. This is a form of agape love, sacrificial love, God-first love. The reputation of the kingdom matters more than anything else, love. That's what this love is. You must love God. That's what he says. Very simple. So from the root word agape, and how do we show that we love God? Through obedience. Isn't that what Samuel told Saul, that God would rather obedience than sacrifice? And so it is shown through obedience. So number one, what does the verse say? Number one, love God. What's the second part? Well, you already know the answer. You must be called according to his purpose. You must be called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose for humanity? Second Peter 3, 9, God's willing that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God's desire, uh, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, God loved the world. And so what did he do? That he gave his own son, that we would be saved. And so God's desire, God's call for you is that you would be called to what? To receive his love and in response, according to 1 John, we love him because why? Because he first loved us, that he interceded our lives and he placed his love in us so that we could reflect the love that he gave us back to him, right? And so if things are going to work out in our life, number one, we've got to love God. And number two, we've got to be called according to his purpose. So we're going to get super nerdy for a second, all right? We're going to dig into the technicals and I don't think any of this is on your handout. So just bear with me for a second. The, the active voice, present tense of the verb, works together, which is where we get the word synergy. It emphasizes that there is a continuing activity of God. So if it's working together, what God is telling us here is that we are working together with God. Not that we rogue and go out and do our own thing, but that we are submitted to the lordship of Jesus and we are working together with God. We're working together. It's significant that a believer's love for God follows God's calling him, which, as I mentioned, is the product of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so he says that it works together. How does it work together? It works together for good. It is the same good that is used in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 17, which says every good or healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Pastor Tony talked about this on Sunday, right? And so what he's saying is all things work out for good or all things work out for, according to Matthew 7's usage of the word, healthy, okay? 
And so these things, the things that we see, they in themselves may not be good. If you've ever had a healthy diet, it's not the best. I'm just saying Zaxby's is better. But healthy is not always based on our definition, right? And so God harmonizes these things to be the ultimate good because his goal is to do what? To bring them into perfection in his presence, right? In, in starting points, uh, if you've been in starting point it, or if you've ever been through it, we go through justification where God, uh, that you, your sin is not accounted to you. And then we go through sanctification which is uh, the removal, the penalty of sin is removed at justification. Sanctification is removing the power of sin in your life. And then we get to glorification, which removes the, uh, the presence of sin, right? And so that's what, that's what this word is saying, that God is sanctifying everything according to his purpose as we work together with him. And so the word purpose is God's plan, which is what we talked about two weeks ago. So what God is doing, he's literally setting forth in advance for a specific purpose. Now that word, purpose, God's plan, is the same word in Hebrew, very interesting here, that is used to describe the bread of presence. The bread of presence, or otherwise known as the showbread, was a special bread that was always present on a table in the tabernacle and, of course, later in the temple. In other words, the bread of presence was always available for use. Listen to me. Don't miss this. So what is Paul saying that God works all things out together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose? Paul is saying that for those that are always available for God's use, God will use. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that you can do whatever you want and God's just going to turn it around and fix it. You know, when Noah was little, he had uh, Thomas the Train. He loved Thomas the Train. And uh, so he had these little trains that you'd stick a battery in, and the train would run by itself. And we would put it on the table in the living room. It was a round table. And he would put it on the table, and that train would go around and around and around. And if the train got off track, it would start going off the table. And what would Dad do? I would just step in and turn the train, and then it would start back on course. Right? Some people believe that you can just go out and act any way that you want, and God's just going to step in and just turn you a little bit and redirect you. Now, can God do that? Yes, but you have to be available for God's use because remember, you have free will. And God is not going to intersect your life and force you to do something that you don't want to do. And so, as we talk about this, we have to be in the context of that I am always available. For use. And so we ask the question then if God works all things out for good, then what happens when someone dies? What happens when things that don't seem to work out? I think it's important that we put some context into our conversation tonight so we can attempt to make some sense of what God wants us to know. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 says this. It says, and we talked about this a while back in Corinthians, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the reality is, you know, Paul alludes to this in many different places, but he says that what we see is temporary. What we don't see is eternal. So there are things happening in your life, there are things happening in my life that I don't see. There's things that you don't see. There's things that you're not privy to in the spiritual realm that are taking place that God is orchestrating. Now, what is he orchestrating? He is orchestrating the decreed will of God. There are things that will absolutely happen that no one can derail. Your salvation is one of those. So if you have trusted to follow Jesus, what that means is that no man, according to John 10, 29, can pluck you from the Father's hand. So there is nothing that can derail that plan. There, there are several things like that. But what God does is he orchestrates these things, and we're not privy to all of those things. Praise the Lord, right? I'm glad I don't know everything that I need to know. You see, there's a lot, according to the Bible, that we don't know, things that we are incapable of seeing clearly. So we've got to start with what we know. What do we know? Well, we know this, that God is certainly in absolute control. If he wasn't, this world would be over. There is a restraining force on this earth. You can guarantee yourself that. God is in absolute and total control. If you don't believe that, ask DeMar Hamlin today, right? The football player who collapsed on the field and was dead essentially for 10 minutes. And then, you know, just a few days ago, he sent out a message over the internet, right? God's in absolute control. You see, God's at work. The question is, are you available for God to work in your life. Remember, this is the showbread, the bread of presence. Isn't it interesting that it's called that? You see, God is at work. God is certainly in control. The Bible refers to this as the sovereignty of God, a tremendously huge theological principle. Scripture emphasizes God's rule or His sovereignty in three different areas. You see, Scripture clarifies uh, or testifies clearly that God rules over his creation. So how is God sovereign? Well, number one, he's sovereign over creation. There's many places that talk about that. Of course, Genesis 1 is very popular. You just read that in D group. The Bible affirms that God rules humanity according to his purpose, those that are available for his mission. Scripture also depicts redemption as the work of God. Scripture depicts redemption as the work of God alone. And so we see God at work in creation. We see God at work in humanity and our redemption. And so as God is working, we see, you know, the redemption process taking place. But here's the problem that we run into. The consequences of sin. You see, sin showed up in the Garden of Eden. We all know the story, right? And so as sin showed up, it changed the direction of humanity because we'll get to in a little bit, God created us to be perfect, right? And God created us to walk and live in harmony with Him. God created us to be sinless. That was the design, the original design. But because of sin, the original sin of Adam, according to Romans 5, then we're at war with God. And so God brought peace to man through Jesus, okay? And so as we have this sin, the consequence of sin, the consequences of sin can be very brutal even in the presence of God's mercy and God's grace, right? The consequences of sin are not erased 
at salvation. Right? We're, we're all clear on that? You see, there are sometimes some tragic consequences for our past actions. So in other words, God has a decreed purpose of the things that he will work out for those that are available for his purpose. And so if we say, well, God, if tonight you hear this and say, God, look, I want to be the showbread. I want to be available for mission. I want to be involved, God, in what you are doing. That is not going to erase any terrible thing that you've done in the past. You're still going to have to deal with the consequences of what you've done. Take David, for instance. David committed adultery. You know, you know, with David and Bathsheba and Uriah, and so, you know, he had Uriah killed, and so David has a child, and so David repented. You know, Psalms is a lot of David repenting. And David talks about having a contrite heart and going to God and confessing your sin, which is exactly what a believer should do when they uh, sin. And so David does that, and he goes before God, and he repents. Does that erase anything that happened? Did Uriah come back to life? No, he did not. What happened to the baby? He died. Consequences of sin. It doesn't negate the purposes of God. It's because in a fallen world, sin still has consequences. And so as, we, as I thought about this, as I was you know, preparing for tonight, I thought, well, what are some ways that we bring those consequences on ourselves? Well, there's a few places I think that we could all agree with. The first one is self-inflicted wounds. I, I referenced this earlier. You know, if we go out rogue and try to do our own thing, self-inflicted wounds, that we've done some dumb things in our life, right? That we've gone astray, that we've, you know, the Bible says all have sinned. So we've all gone off and done our own things. Those are self-inflicted wounds. God is not going to erase those things in your life when you went out and did something. Can he do it? He can do anything. But unfortunately, in a fallen world, we have to still deal with these consequences of the self-inflicted wounds that we create. The second thing, you know, that creates uh, these circumstances for us is simply life in a fallen world. I mean, like I said, look around. What happened immediately following the fall of Adam and Eve? What happened? A bad guy killed a good guy, right? Cain and Abel, isn't that what happened? That's the very next thing that happened. And so life in a fallen world is a result of what? You know, are you going to, if Cain killed Abel and you're talking to Abel and you say, man, it's going to work out. Try telling Eve that, right? Hey, everything works out. Uh, everything happens for a reason. Try telling her to understand that, right? And, and so what I'm saying is, Sin, life in a fallen world, creates these circumstances, not that God couldn't do, but because of sin, we've created these consequences. And so when it comes to the consequences of the fall, we are not offered immunity. What is God's answer to the consequences of the fall? Eternity, right? That's what glorification is, is redeeming everything that, that has gone bad. That God would take those who follow him, according to Romans 8, 28, and redeem those things. So self-inflicted wounds. Life in a fallen world. And this one should be very obvious, but how about bad decisions? I've made bad decisions. Right? We make, we make the wrong decisions because we're not perfect. 
And so in those bad decisions, what happens? We deal with the consequences of that. David made some bad decisions. David made some bad decisions. And so the point here is, you know, as we think about all of these wounds that take place, both for the believer and for the unbeliever, or those who follow Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus, so oftentimes we want to generalize Scripture. But again, Paul is very specific here. He's saying that this God working out everything according to good is according to God's good for those that are available for God to work through them. So, in other words, God makes no promise to those who fail to follow Jesus. In other words, you can't go out and live ever how you want to live and then ask God to fix everything. Right? This, the promise, did it not come up? The promise is for those that commit to follow Jesus. And so as we think about that, we say, all right, well, you know, I want to follow Jesus. You know, I'm committing to follow Jesus. And so that promise, I want to be available for God to use me. I want those things to work. I want to be a part of God's purposes. You see, when we believe that everything works out and that I can't mess anything up, well, what happens when, when things don't work out? What happens? Well, you see, what happens is when we believe this, then we can easily turn to blame God when things don't go our way. Right? When I'm convinced that God called me to do this, when I'm convinced that this is what God is doing in my life, when I'm convinced this is the purposes of God, and then remember those unmet expectations and those aren't, those aren't fulfilled, what happens? We start to blame God. See, that's why it's dangerous that we would adopt this theology. You see, this doesn't mean that God is the direct cause of everything that happens. When we say, oh, well, all things work out according to his plan, well, it doesn't mean that God causes us because we just went through a list of things that God does not cause. He does not cause your bad decisions. He does not cause uh, sin in the world. That was not God's plan. God's plan, again, as I remind you, was perfection. It also doesn't mean that everything God allows is good. It doesn't mean that. You don't believe me, sit down and talk with Job for a little while. What does the Bible say in Job 1? That Satan wanted to, he wanted to destroy Job, essentially, and God did what? He allowed it. Now, did those things turn out to be in, in, in Job's favor? I mean, you know, you read the end of Job, and you say, oh, yeah, but look, it was, he had twice as much, and look at all the things that happened. Again, sit down and have a conversation with Job. See how he feels about it. It's easy for us to point and say, hey, but look how it turned out. You know, talk to the disciples on Saturday after the crucifixion, right? They're not feeling real confident right now that this is the greatest event in history. And so as we, we think about this, we have to understand, you know, the context around what's going on. You see, there is a difference between what God allows and what God causes, there's a difference between what God permits and what he prefers. You see, God, because of free will, he's going to let you go out and he's going to let you make bad decisions. There's an extent to where you can go and do whatever you want. Now, I believe, this is Matt's belief, okay, I believe that as a child of God, the Bible says that I am bought with a price, I am not my own, 
And so I believe because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, there, that God is directing my life in the way that He wants me to go. And I can choose to go the wrong way. I can take the wrong path. I can do the wrong thing. You see, the problem for us is that it's impossible for us to distinguish between the things that God causes and God allows, the painful things that happen in our life. And so we, we don't know, is this something that I did? You know, oftentimes we want to blame God or we want to put things on God. You see, God doesn't cause sin. And you often hear people say that God uses sin. That is not what He does. God's grace overcomes sin. That is how God directs the things in our life. So I know we've talked about some high-level stuff. we talked about some technical stuff. But I want you to leave with some practical stuff. So why does all of this matter? You know, why we talk about meaning. We're all on board. I can, I can sense your buy-in at the beginning. You're like, yeah, I want to have meaning. I want to be involved in the things of God. I want things to work out. I want that verse to be true. I want it to be real, that God takes everything and redeems all of it. I want those things to be true. You see, we're okay when things work out to our favor, right? When you pray for something and you get what you prayed for, you're good with that. When something bad happens and, and you ask God to intervene and it works out, you're good with that. When there's conflict or when there's a situation that's bad, you know, uh, again, like, you know, incredible how the entire nation seemingly rallied around DeMar Hamlin and began to pray for God to do something. And God did something. And we're okay with that. And we celebrate it and we parade that everything happens for a reason and God worked it out. And we're good with that when it works out to our favor. But we are not okay. We greatly struggle with the things that do not work out in our favor. And you may not agree out loud to that, but you definitely agree in your heart to that. That you and I struggle when things don't work out the way that we want them to. And here's the reality of it. You, you've all, I'm sure, have experienced to some degree uh, difficulties and tragedies and bad things in your life. And so when the goods work out, we're good with that. It's when they don't work out that we struggle. That's the hard part. So maybe, maybe this is why this message is preached tonight. Maybe you're there, that you're struggling with the why, right? You're struggling with what is happening here, and I don't have understanding in this moment, and it's not going the way that I thought or that I wanted it to go. And so what do I do in that? You see, here's the reality. Understanding is not what we ultimately desire. Listen, if your loved one dies and you understand why they died, you're still not okay with that, right? If something tragic happens in your life and, and you get a letter in the mail and it explains everything of why it happened, you are still not okay with that. So understanding is not what you desire. I thought a lot about this. You see, what you want is not understanding. Knowing why it happened doesn't change anything. It still hurts. It still causes pain and heartache, and no amount of understanding will change that. You see, when things don't work out for our good, by our definition, what we don't need is a theological answer. So can I encourage you tonight that when you find someone in that situation, that the answer is not for you to explain why it happened. I can tell you what I need in that moment. And I can bet it's probably what you need as well. 
You see, what we do need is the real and comforting presence of Jesus in that moment. The greatest thing that you and I can have in misunderstanding, in conflict, in difficulty, in tragedy, is not understanding. It is the comforting presence of Jesus. You see, what we really desire is peace from God. That's what we desire. You know, when, we, when our hearts read Romans 8, 28, and we say, man, I, I would love for that to be true. You know what we're asking? We're saying, God, I want peace from you. You see, if you're a believer here tonight, if you've committed your life to follow Jesus, you have peace with God. That's what Romans 5 says, that Jesus, because of Jesus, he made peace with God on your behalf. Your sin, my sin, created a war against God. And God is always going to win that war. And so what Jesus did is he made peace with God. But what we're talking about tonight is we're talking about peace from God. That the comforting presence of Jesus' peace in the moments of those difficulties, in the moments that we don't understand, is the thing that we desire the most. We need God to calm the storm in our minds and to ease the pain in our hearts. And so what is the path forward in those moments? I want to give you just a few things before we finish here tonight. Every hardship calls for the same thing, our obedience. God, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of not understanding, in the midst of hardship, God is still calling you to obedience. When life falls apart, what do we do? We look for the path of obedience. We look for the path of obedience. When Israel was pursuing God, what happened in their life? Enemies were defeated. Nations were eradicated. Obstacles were removed. And what happened? God was glorified. Was there difficulty and death and setbacks along the way? Absolutely. But God orchestrated these purposes. God orchestrated these circumstances to accomplish his ultimate purpose. And what is God's ultimate purpose? God's ultimate purpose is his glory. That is God's ultimate purpose. You see, where does the path of obedience lead? The path of obedience leads to God's glory. So I don't want to give you, you know, a theology term and, and leave, you know, I don't want you to go home and say, oh, well, if I'm in difficulty, I don't understand. Well, I just need to pursue God's glory. Well, no, we, we, we've got to put some meat on that. You see, this is the meat of the verse in Romans 8, 28. The, the bread of presence language, it assumes a localized presence of holy God. It, it indwells the, what, what is often called God's glory. Because here's the reality. Listen to me tonight. When God's glory is present, things change. When God's glory is present, things change. And isn't, what, isn't that what we want in the midst of human tragedy? Is we want change, right? We want God to show up in the moment. You see, glory or God's glory is God's infinite, intrinsic worth. It, it, it means that in all that we pursue, the definition of our why becomes very clear. 
Why does the definition become very clear? Because God is the initiator. When God's glory is what we are in pursuit of, in the midst of difficulty and trouble, and the bread of presence indwells that. When, when we say, God, I'm pursuing your glory, what that means is the only way, the Bible says that there's none good, no, not one, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. So how does good come out of us? It is because God initiates that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So how, you can't leave here tonight and say, that's what I need to do. I need more of God's glory in my life. You can't conjure that up. And so what you have to do is it has to be through what? The presence of God in your life. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? It is glory for God. It's through the presence of God. And so, you know, so oftentimes in our life, we pursue our own goals and our own purposes. And you know what? A lot of times those things don't work out. And you know what we do? We say, God, what did you do to me? How did you get me in this situation? What is happening here? What would happen, though, what would change in your life for you to commit to pursuing the presence of God for the glory of God? You see, when this happens, it creates meaning. If your life is trivial, if you don't feel like you accomplish anything, you're pursuing the wrong things. Because a life in pursuit of the presence of God, it attracts the glory of God, which creates meaning in your life. So how do we do it? How do we create meaning? Practical walkaways here. Number one, build your life on things that don't change. Build your life on things that don't change. Don't build your life on things that change. Listen, if your finances are your foundation, you're going to falter. If your relationships with people are your foundation, you are going to falter. Your foundation has to be Jesus and Jesus alone, right? You have to build your life on things that don't change. What doesn't change? God doesn't change. People are going to let you down. Situations are going to hurt your feelings. Tragedy will find you. You have to build your life on things that don't change. You know what doesn't change? God. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you pursue the presence of God, that doesn't change. Stop building your life on things that are frivolous, on things that you built, on things that you pursued, on things that you desire. Build your life on the things that God has in store for you. Because remember our conversation one-on-one, you were specifically and intentionally made for the kingdom. Build your life on that. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he made, which included you and me, and behold, it was very good. That's how he intended for it to be. He is the God that loves you. He is the God that sacrificed his son to make a way for you, and he will go to unlimited lengths to take care of you. If nothing at all, you have the salvation is the greatest thing you could possess that is from God and God alone. That is the guarantee for the person who receives it. So number one, build your life on things that don't change. Number two, live your life not based on what you expect from life, but by what God expects from you. 
Build your life on things that don't change and live your life based on God's expectations, not on what you expect from life. Stop looking around and saying, well, if my neighbor can have it, so can I. That is wrong, my friend. Stop looking around and saying, I deserve that, or I need that, or this is for me. Say, God, what is for me? God, what do you have for me? God may call you to to live in a a third world country and make $400 a year or whatever. If that's what God called you to do, you will find the most meaning in your life than if you made a million dollars a second. So you have to build your life based on God's expectations. What are God's expectations? Well, let's start small. If you don't have time tonight to read all 66 books, start with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a great starting point. Live your life based on what God expects. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you loving God? Isn't that the beginning that you would love, uh, that God works all things out according to those who love God, agape, sacrificially, and are called according to his purpose? When is the last time you sacrificed for somebody? When is the last time that you did something that you didn't want to do? Right? As adults, we build this barrier, and we live in the comfort zone. Live your life based on God's expectation. Stop trying to accomplish something that you want, because if you get it, it won't be fulfilling. Last but not least, there will come a day. There's going to be a day. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or how about 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9? But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what the Bible says, for those who love him. So I want to encourage you tonight. Find meaning in your life through the presence of Jesus. That's where and only where meaning is found, and that's where the pursuit of glory begins. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit that you guide us, that you call us to think.